every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Norman Guadagno, CMO of Acoustic, where he is helping reimagine marketing technology. Over the past two decades, he has held a number of marketing and strategy roles with a deep focus on business transformation, marketing acceleration, and brand building. Norman was previously Senior Vice President of Marketing at Carbonite, helping to successfully transform that company from B2C to B2B. He has also held senior marketing positions at digital marketing agency Wirestone, Microsoft, and Oracle. On this episode, Norman shares the video strategy that many marketers are sleeping on, the depth of thought that went into Acoustic's recent website redesign, and why SEM is Norman's number one uncuttable budget item. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Norman Guadagno, CMO of Acoustic, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today we are joined by a special guest. Norman, how are you? I am great, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to have you. We are super excited to talk with you today about Acoustic. We are excited to talk about DemandGen as always. So what was your first job in DemandGen? You know, I had to go way back uh, when and uh, to try to figure that out because it's been a lot of years to really say, when did I actually say I'm working in DemandGen? It turns out it was probably the year... 1999. I know that is a long time ago. And I joined a company that's no longer in existence uh, as a VP of marketing. And I'd actually worked my way up through the product marketing side and then the brand marketing side. Even though I dabbled in demand gen, that was the first time that I had responsibility for it. And I was plunged into learning a lot very quickly because it was a company that I joined a week before the company went public. And we all of a sudden had to do just that. Like, hey, how do we get people to buy our stuff? And I'm like, I think I know what I'm doing. I didn't. And I relied heavily on some really smart people who helped me understand a lot of what was cutting edge in in 1999. And that really opened my eyes to uh, a lot of what I ultimately came to see as the the two sides of uh, marketing, which is sort of brand and demand and uh, and how they have to live together to be successful. And, and I'm sure we'll talk some more about that. And I'm also, I'm also dating myself to say that uh, I was doing this stuff in 1999. So flash forward to today. Tell us a little bit about your role at Acoustic. Yeah, sure. And so at Acoustic as a CMO, Uh, And in fact, as the quote-unquote first CMO, uh, I have uh, been doing a lot. I've been there for about uh, 19 months or so. I joined in September of 2019. The company was actually founded 
in July of 2019. So we're about to come up on our two-year anniversary. Uh, and Acoustic is a little bit of an interesting business story because the company was created as a carve-out of a set of products, people, customers from IBM. So what was once IBM Watson Marketing was sold off by IBM to a private equity firm, and that became Acoustic. So Acoustic was literally born on July 1st, 2019. Uh, I joined in September, and I had to build a marketing team, build a brand, build a demand creation team and engine, build content. Well, you name it, we had to do it. And so that's really what I and I have a team of 16 people uh, we've been working on uh, for the past almost two years is creating a, a company from whole cloth that already had customers and employees and revenue, and yet nobody had ever heard of it. And they knew the old name and we had to wipe out that name. We had to begin getting our own customers and we changed who we were focused on in terms of selling from what IBM did. So I, I've been doing pretty much everything. If you look at the CMO job description, I'm pretty sure there's nothing I haven't done uh, as part of this team in the past uh, couple of years. Well, I'm I'm so excited to get into this because uh, what a what a little case study here on uh, you know building a brand from scratch. It's been hard, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, let's go to our first segment: the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What I thought we were in the trust tree with in the nest, are we not? This is where you can go and feel honest and trusted and share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. To start off with, what is your demand gen strategy? You talked about brand and demand. So what is the demand side? Yeah, I, you know, these two things, as I said, they are tightly coupled. And it's interesting when, when building a brand from the ground up and simultaneously have to generate demand and have to generate revenue, uh, didn't we didn't have the luxury of let's just build a brand and eventually the revenue will follow. We actually had to keep the revenue engine flowing. Well, the the initial strategy was a lot of, frankly, heavily leveraging brand building activity to start to create that nascent demand. And that began to fuel the engine. And at the same time, we were also building a sales organization. You don't do that overnight either. So we had to build the sales organization and the whole go-to-market motion end to end. And over time, as we started to build each of those pieces uh, what we found was that if there's a secret to what we're doing right now, uh, we continue to invest in the brand, but not as heavily perhaps as we did early on. But we still want to continue to build brand because we know we measure it. We know it's not where we want it to be yet, but it's improved considerably. And we're really focused on who we do actual demand creation activity aimed at. We, we can't afford to be really broad and to open the aperture wide. We have an understanding of who our target buyers are and where they live and what our ideal customer profile is. And we try to be very targeted right now. And in fact, only in the last few months, I think we've started to open the aperture up a little bit more other than that well-defined target because uh, we have a finite budget and we need to be able to fill the pipe for our sales partners. And so that requires, requires a lot of targeting. Uh, and the, the other side of the secret that's been key for us is we knew we were in a crowded and somewhat commoditized space. Right? MarTech's a big space. There's a lot of players. There's a lot of 
marketing automation and campaign automation solutions. And whereas we, we might believe that we have some advantages, it's, it's not easy to convince the market of that. There's a lot of noise. So we tend to stay away and have really stayed away from focusing on product messaging. Uh, and we focused either on thought leadership or just sending messages to the market that, that differentiate us sufficiently so somebody would pay attention. Yeah. So can you talk about who is your target demographic? Who do you sell to? What are the, what are the types of companies and, uh, and what, are, what are they looking for when they, when they partner with Acoustic? Yeah, you know, we're, we're really aimed at the at sort of upper mid market uh, to lower enterprise. Maybe if, and obviously revenue is never the best proxy, but it, it's really that 500 million to a billion, a billion and a half. That's sort of a sweet spot for us. And uh, we sell into primarily marketing departments, uh, although sometimes there, as always, there are other players involved in the decision process. But our core product, Acoustic Campaign, is really focused on the marketer and the marketing department. Uh, one of our other products, Acoustic Tea Leaf, is more focused on typically the IT or the, the uh, digital commerce side of the house. But for our marketing audience in that sort of upper mid-market, lower enterprise, uh, we are pretty focused on speaking to a, a CMO, a VP of marketing, a VP of marketing operations, the people who are going to actually think about that. And the buyers are, are an interesting set. And if you look across the market and for everyone who's listening, who's obviously thinking about demand gen, you have a lot of businesses that as they've grown, they may have taken their email solution with them as they've grown. And maybe they started on one of the smaller, simpler platforms when they were a somewhat smaller business and they've taken it with them as they've grown. And they reach a point where they realize, you know what, this isn't good enough for what we need to do. We can't build multi-touch, multi-channel, sophisticated campaigns with this. But we're not quite ready to go to those big enterprise solutions and go all in on a platform that has everything. That's a, that's a sweet spot for Acoustic because we offer the capabilities in the product of the super high-end solutions, but with an easier path of entry, hopefully a better price point, and an ability to slot it right in. And we're an open solution. We pride ourselves on the ability to connect to various data sources, other solutions. So you don't have to buy everything from Acoustic. You just buy the piece that you really need, particularly as what you're, what we call the, the graduate, right? You're graduating out of maybe using an ESP or another email solution, uh, but you're not ready to, or if you ever will be, move to some massive enterprise solution. Yeah, and so, you know, obviously selling to marketers and marketers are, are, the, uh, are the folks that we bring on the show. So clearly, you know, mar marketers selling to marketers is, is a little different. Uh, especially when you're the one, uh, you know, kind of drinking your own champagne or kombucha or whatever, whatever, yeah, well, whatever, you're whatever drinking. it is you're drinking. Um, how do you think about that as a group of people who are obviously very savvy to to marketing? Yeah, this is this is something that I tell you, Ian, I've thought a lot about because it was actually one of the things that attracted me to the job in the first place when I came to Acoustic was the opportunity to market to marketers. Because one of the things I'd always preached in just about every other role I was ever in was, remember, we're not the customer. And this was a case of, wait, we actually kind of are. 
the customer. And so that was that was intellectually and professionally appealing to me. Like, how do I get over that that gap of okay, now I'm selling to peers, I'm selling to people who are as sophisticated about the space as I am. And uh, the first rule is uh, nobody sees through BS faster than another marketer. So you have to really try to have a, a discussion, whether that's through your, your content, through your demand channels or face-to-face, uh, that's rooted in a, in a shared understanding of, hey, we understand what's going on here. I'm not going to tell you, oh, our product does everything and it does it better than everyone. That's not what it's about. What we're saying is, look, I want to understand your use cases, your challenges, and see if what we offer might be the right fit. Because I understand, as another marketer, the things you're going through. I understand that you can't do this or you want to be able to do this. Let me tell you, if we're a good fit or, you know what, I've used just about every product on the market I might tell you one of our competitors is a better fit, honestly, if I have a one-on-one discussion with you, because I'm not going to waste your time and try to trick you into, oh, yeah, this is great. It it cures everything and makes everything fabulous, because ultimately we know that's not true. So there's there's a level of transparency, honesty, and integrity that I think marketers need to bring to the table when they're, when they're marketing to their peers. You know, that stuff comes off so good when, you know, when I'm hearing it from you, when you hear that sort of transparency, but sometimes it's kind of tough to get that authenticity when you're, you know, doing that in a blog post or something else. How do you kind of, for lack of a better word, scale that sort of messaging? It's not easy, for sure. Uh, We try to be sensitive to the types of topics we cover, the language that we use. And, and I'm not against a little bit of sort of bragging or, you know, saying, Hey, we want to, we want to demonstrate why we're better. And, and we've done some activity to, to say, hey, here, we think we're better than a competition because. But it, it's not easy to do at scale. And, and we all have to remember, particularly those of us who may be on the marketing side of the house, our friends in sales, they're, by definition, sellers. And sellers will sometimes do what it takes to convince someone. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What? Nope. You don't. Ne- you never need to put air in those tires. These are guaranteed for life tires. Well, uh, maybe that's not actually true, but you drove the car off a lot. So it, it requires a certain degree of, of diligence and a certain degree of vigilance, vigilance rather. And I know we've probably messed it up a few times. And I constantly look at everything we're doing and saying, are we being true to who we want to be, which is we're going to listen to our customers and the market and we're going to put out content that is valuable and as transparent and honest as we reasonably can be. But we're still in the business of selling stuff, right? That's what happens at the end of the day. We have to catch attention. So do you catch attention with things that are perhaps overinflation or uh, a little bit of uh, hyperbole versus do you catch attention with things that are unique and interesting and stand out? from other things in the market. Well, let's get to some of those things that stand out. Let's go to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? 
And boy, if every person on this show doesn't list the first one first or second, I'm always surprised, but uh, I know sometimes it's not true. I, I am, have been, will be, and continue to be, and the numbers prove it, uh, a believer in search. Like SEM works. And uh, no matter how you slice it, and, and by the way, I think you know this and, and everyone else does, right? SEM is, a, is not a one and done. It's, uh, you have to water and trim the plants every single day because it really requires attention. You have to understand the market. You have to be thoughtful about what you're investing in and you have to continue to iterate. But the world starts with search and smart placement with keywords and smart ads that convey actual information and bring somebody to a page that actually delivers value to them works really well. So SEM's first at the top of the list. Uh, the second thing that I think we've seen a lot of interesting traction around and always surprises me at some level is uh, video. And it's not that I'm surprised. I love video. I think it's a great medium and you can you can tell a rich textured story in, in 15, 30 seconds, but you sort of step outside yourself as a B2B marketer and you think, oh, you know, B2C is dominated by video. And yet B2B is sort of dominated by video in some ways too. And video plays a really strong role in being able to capture people's attention and imagination quickly and then bring them back through into you know, complete a form or take another action on a, on a particular journey. Uh, and then the third thing that is less about where we're spending money on, on demand, but I consider critical, particularly in B2B tech, is we build relationships with the analyst community so we get reports that put us in the right place. And having yourself land in a in a magic quadrant or at the forefront of a, of a wave is actually a great way to have third-party demonstration of your value as a solution. And it's a simple way for buyers. If you put your buyer hat on, there's so many sources of information that it's frankly kind of easy to say, I want to see what Gartner or Forrester or some other analyst firm said. And so we work to build strong relationships with the analyst community so that they understand what we're trying to do and where we're going with the product so that when they do their reports, we, we show the best we can. Let's unpack those uh, a little bit. <laughs> that was a lot there. <laughs> I know. It's so good. No, I love it. So when you're talking SEM versus SEO, are you also doing activities that help SEO or are you just focused on just the paid uh, SEM? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point, and, and I, you know, my own my own sort of enthusiasm for the things we spend money on. Uh, we just uh, completely rebuilt our website and launched a new version of it in March. Looks great, by the way. Oh, thank you, appreciate that. Two big drivers of that were well, three. One, we just involved our positioning and messaging tremendously over you know a year and a half, so we had to really reflect that. Two, we had to completely move to our own product which was key because we weren't completely on our own product uh, previously. And three was SEO optimization. We built a whole new hierarchy and taxonomy of information and content. And we completely redid 
the SEO model top to bottom so that we had alignment between SEM and SEO. And, and I'm, and I, and I really thank you for pointing that out, qualifying my own comments of SEM is critical, but if you don't also have the SEO working, so you get organic results, uh, you're only doing half the job. Totally. And we've, we've measured ourselves so that we know where we're coming in organic searches on the, the terms we consider valuable. We know where we're investing. And, and those two things can, can aid each other when, if you really want a term that you just can't optimize on the SEO side for, you can go buy the keyword, right? And that'll draw people in and vice versa. If you can't afford the keyword because the bidding's too high, but you can optimize an SEO, you get the organic result. Those two things have to work together. Uh, we're doing both of them regularly. We have great agency partners that work with on that. And it's, it's, it's probably where we spend more time and definitely more money than just about anything else. I love that. Yeah. I, um, it's interesting that you said agency partners too, because I was thinking, cause your team just isn't, isn't a huge, you know, you don't have a hundred marketers on your team. So, no, you know, building that capacity, uh, to, for those two things is, is super time consuming. You also have to create the content to feed the beast on the SEO side. You do, you do all the time. So we are pretty focused uh, and I'm, you know, I spent time in the agency world myself. Uh, I spent five years at an agency and uh, I, I learned how, when I was on the agency side, to be a good partner to my clients. And so as a client, I try to be a, a good client and work with my agencies in a way that helps make them successful. Uh, and as such, uh, I've been pretty successful in having a few agencies that I've built strong relationships with and have now worked with uh, across a couple of companies. Okay. So number two, you said video. I think this is something that, you know, as a company that creates podcasts and, and videos, uh, I can, I can obviously <laughs> share the enthusiasm here. What kinds of videos, how do you use them? Where are you putting them? How are you getting people back to them? Um, how do you think about video? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot going on there, Ian. One of the things we've just done recently, and, and I'll use this as an example and then talk about a couple of other items, is uh, as we launched a couple of competitive campaigns, we built funny, simple video clips. You may have seen them if you've been looking at some of the advertising we've been doing or we've been uh, retargeting you. And just being able to land a, a smile, honestly, in 15 seconds. Uh, and yeah, we're jabbing a little at a competitor but we're also trying to say, hey, we're in this, we're trying to have a little fun. Those have performed very well on YouTube, on LinkedIn, you know, some display where we uh, are testing buying that. So that's one type of video that we've been using. We have created more of a product walk through demo, a little bit more in-depth video around some of our products uh, there, not only working, but uh, actually seeing 60 second working and you say nobody watches a video for 60 seconds but people do watch video ads for 60 seconds and that's valuable and then the third thing is we we create our own podcast and webcast video series i produce one on a regular basis which we both drop whole right the full 45 minutes plus we then cut some of them up uh, we run a set of webcasts and we can take content out of that and then we have customer success stories where we build little video success stories that we use. And again, across targeted on things like LinkedIn, targeted on, on YouTube, constantly looking. We tested Hulu uh, for a little bit uh, 
last year just to see if we could get a little traction there. We're always testing. And what I love about video also is it's employees, sales folks, they love videos that they can pass on to others. So it builds a little of its own momentum through uh, through social. We use it in organic social as well as paid social. There, There's a lot of different ways you can apply that. And I think now that we've finished launching the new site and I, I'm just starting the prep for the next phase of the website, I want to add even more video to the site. You knew I was going to ask about about podcasts and videos uh, because uh, <laughs> especially when it's your number two here. That's what you did. Of course. <laughs> but but the well, the, the thing that I think is so interesting about what you were just saying is with the, with the, the variety of the videos that you're doing, uh, this is one of the things that actually really frustrates me with marketing when people say like, oh, well, we're, we're doing customer success videos, for example, or we're doing testimonials or something like that. And they're like, that's, yeah, we do video, we do that. And then we have our, our, you know, our, our explainer video or our demo video or whatever. And it's like, those are very low funnel. Well, the demos, demos, not necessarily, but as low, but like a customer success video is like, that's just such a low funnel activity, right? So yep. you're like, if you're not doing high funnel video activities that, and that, and that's all you're doing. And I know video is really expensive so that you have to be creative with figuring out how to do these. But the, the thing of like what your sales team said, your sales team's not just going to be posting customer success videos ad nauseum on their LinkedIn feed. Cause it's just not relevant to enough people. No, no, I totally agree. And, and producing, I mean, we've produced what I always call Anthem videos, right? Just fun, visionary, this is where we are, where we're going. And this taps into an, a, a, more, a, a more interesting and deeper topic. And, and I'm sure you've talked about this before and, and you know it yourself, right? You can't just appeal to the rational side of your audience. You have to appeal to the emotional side. There's been tons of research that has demonstrated this again and again. Google's done some great research on this. Uh, at my previous company, we produced a commercial video uh, and it was pure emotion. And for a business where I was you know, in the backup and cybersecurity business previously, and it was the best thing we ever did was 30 or 60 second cut of a, of a deeply emotionally resonant video that landed the why behind the product. And then you can do all the other stuff to explain the how. And so I believe deeply that every business, no matter how techy, how deep you wanna go, if you don't also speak to the emotional side, you are just missing out on a big portion of creating resonance with your target market. And, and frankly, helping them understand that you understand them. And if you can do that, you're going to do better in the demand work that you build. Yeah, it's such a great point. I mean, I think it's one of the the difficult things to, you know, skate where the puck is going, sort of a, a thing to say, hey, we're going to be ahead of our product, or we're going to be ahead of like getting that messaging out far enough that you want to be aspirational. And you kind of have to go back and just be grounded on like the why of, of what you're doing, because that's going to be a lot more evergreen than, you know, trying to stay ahead of where your product is, for example. Right. And the products evolve all the time. And, and not only the products evolve all the time, particularly in, in spaces like you know, any SaaS based software company or 
you know, the space we're in and marketing automation. And not only do products evolve over time, but the things that buyers consider important at any moment in time changes. And because there are trends in how products are being used and what's hot, what seems to be working, what's a focus on. And so that goes up and down and up and down. Of course, you have to be able to meet that. But what's evergreen is the why. Why does it matter? What's truly going to say, hey, I want to get out of bed and care about X. And it's not hard in MarTech to actually find things to people want to care about because as marketers, we pour ourselves into building a great campaign. We want it to be successful. I don't want to send a million emails and then wait and see nobody opened it. Oh my God, that's like that's like a horror movie, right? Somebody sends 10 million emails and nobody opens them. Like that, that's horrible. Not only do I want them to open them, I want to read it and say, oh my, I'm going to click and I'm going to engage. That's reward for me as a, as a marketer. And, and you want to tap into those emotions. You want to, in fact, offer them the thing that's going to make their life better. Well, so, you know, it, it's a great point about, you know, this idea of giving them the education or, or awareness or information that's going to help them improve. But there's times with your product where you're trying to give them this, something that's not that, right? If you're giving them a case study, you're helping them buy your product, but you're not necessarily helping them. And I think that this is a, a, a tough thing for a lot of people. And specifically, as we're talking about creating video assets, you know, you all do a bunch of webinars, you do case studies, you do these sort of posts. How does video shape getting people to go into those sort of different uh, assets that are more of the conversion type assets? Yeah, and I think the role video plays when you get into to more of those conversion assets is twofold in my mind. One, video always humanizes the story. It's truly better to show than to tell. That and, and having a human voice and a human face often, it really makes the story far easier for people to understand. And the second thing I think is critical there is, and, and I hate when I say this because it, it cuts at my heart. People just don't like to read as much anymore, I think. I, and I'm a reader. Uh, I've been a reader forever. I, I can't get through uh, you know, a day without poking my nose into a book of some sort. But I think uh, just unfortunately, we, we constantly are watching video and watching screens and it's a broad sweeping generalization and someone's gonna call me out on it. But I think people just want everything to be tight and crisp and just show me a TikTok and I'm ready to roll. Uh, and you have to acknowledge that. Well, I, you know, I, I bring this up on the show all the time, but it's the, the Mark Twain. If I had, if I had more time, uh, I would have wrote you a shorter letter, but I think that that is 100% true. And I think it's something that marketers really struggle with because it's a lot easier to write the seven page report than to do a 30 second video that gives you all of the information in that report in 30 seconds. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's so, so true. Right. And I mean, I, I have a joke that uh, at work and, and people who've worked with me for a while know this, that before anyone on my team sends me something they've written, a white paper or a 
piece of anything. They know before they even send it to me that I'm going to tell them, reduce it by 25%. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is, right? Because it's always, there's always this desire to explain and explain in detail. And the reality is that that's a desire that originates from you, the teller, right? the storyteller, not from the audience. The audience wants you to get to the point quickly and they want to get to the important things. And it's, it's as simple as you tell a joke, two people walk into a bar, blah, blah, blah. Or it's a rainy night and on one street corner, there's a gentleman in a brown coat and a green hat stepping out of a black car. And on the other corner, there's a female in a blue dress and white heels who are walking toward it, right? And I've now just taken two people walk into a bar and made it this long, complex thing. But you know what? So much marketing writing is just that. Instead of saying two people walk into a bar, it's like, well, let's explain what people are. And then let's explain what walking is. And then, and, and there's that natural tendency to believe that explaining equals differentiating. And frankly, it's just wrong. Yeah, it's you know it's funny. One of the things that for for the shows that we create, uh, we talk a lot about behind the scenes of like not explaining kind of complex topics. And like if if the guest doesn't get it, they can look it up. <laughs> They're sitting there on their phone yes. and they can just Google whatever topic it is that you're talking about or whatever acronym or whatever that is. I mean, some things need some context, but a lot of times it's like if you're speaking at a four hundred one level, you don't need to go back and refresh things for, you know, the 101 or 201 stuff. It, it, so true, right? And, and that, that desire to endlessly take it back down to a 101 and explain, uh, it, it, it really derails getting to the point you want to land. The point of, let me, let me hit this high level thing, let me give you the takeaway. And uh, I, I'm a believer in that. Now, sometimes, of course, you have to explain things. You need context, or uh, right? But I'm assuming that when I'm speaking to marketers, they know what email is. They know what a subject line is. They know what deliverability is. They know what click-through rates are. Maybe they don't all understand everything that goes into email deliverability. I can point you to great places to find out more about it. But conceptually, you know what it is. And let me move to the more important part of the discussion from there. So you mentioned you did a website rebuild, which is always fun as a CMO. <laughs> it is. So how do you view your website? Um, how do you view traffic? And what does this mean to you all as, as you just finish this rebuild? Yeah, you know, our, our website is conceptually, it's the center of our demand creation universe. No matter what else we're going to do, we're trying to bring people back to the website to spend time there and or to download content or complete a contact us form or in the future, talk to somebody in real time as we implement that functionality. So I look on a lot as the center and, and, and it's an important distinction in my mind because all too often people look on the website as this thing out here in front. And I look on it as a center and you're surrounding it with a whole set of different types of demand gen tactics that are bringing people into that website. And when you bring them into that website, you want to respect the fact that 
whether they came in through search or they came in through a display ad or a social link, they typically have some context and you want to make sure that you help them move quickly through the site to wherever they want to go. You want to make sure that if they came from an ad that's about something, that they land on a page, it's about the same thing. Some traffic does direct load, right? Somebody just types in your URL and you're like, cool. But you still have to deliver a quick message to them. So it's a center of our universe. We wanted to bring together something that was focused on the problems we know our buyers face so that they could have an orientation that was rooted in, I need to in I need to increase the number of leads I get. I need to you know be able to test different types of uh, emails. I need to do multi-channel. And being in that experience, we want to give them the ability to quickly find what they want, search easily through the content that's there. Some of it's videos, some of it's papers, and know that there's always a "Hey, contact us" button because there's no there's no trickery involved in the fact that. The goal of the website ultimately is to get prospects to fill out a form and then get contacted by our sales organization. That's what it's there for. And we wanted to make sure that was clear and that you could do it whenever you wanted to. How do we measure success? Well, we, we measure the site, obviously, you know, through the type of standard things around traffic and bounce rates and the paths that are, they're taking. Uh, but we also like to look at, and I've always done, is I like to see which content's being consumed, which content's not being consumed, and then try to analyze as much as you can what's happening with that content. Are there specific words that are resonating and getting people or specific topics that seem to be resonating? And I look on the website 100% as a living, breathing entity. At the second you take your eye off it and say, it's good, you're, you're wrong. Right? You, you have to cultivate it, think about the experience that you're delivering and be willing, by the way, to change things whenever you need to. Right? We just ran a, an A-B test on our homepage and was clear after less than two weeks we were getting more of the behavior we wanted on the B test than the A test. So I was like, great, flip it over to B. End of story, right? It, it's Websites are often rooted in this belief that somehow it has to explain everything to everyone all the time. When in fact, it mostly needs to get a whole class of folks to click the contact us so that a human seller can explain things to them. Or it needs to have them Take what they want and go away, and maybe they'll come back again later. And so, are you are you exploring conversational marketing um, and uh, and and seeing what that what that looks like? We are. Uh, we're we're looking into a, a few of the solutions out there. We're figuring out how they integrate with the types of products we already have and the, the way in which we manage our our whole go to market engine. Uh, we think it's important that if you want to talk to somebody right away. You should be able to. And and this is the lesson, of course, of what was once upon a time. I'm going to fill out a postcard and drop it in the mail, and then I'll get somebody call me in two weeks to tell me about something, to then I'm going to send an email, to then I'm going to fill out a form, to now I want to be able to click and chat right away. Maybe I chat with a bot for a little bit. Maybe I, I quickly roll to a human. Right? There's all sorts of different types of situations. But we are all pressed for time, and we all have expectations of frankly, instant gratification. 
And I, I have nothing against instant gratification. It's awesome. It's not always the easiest thing to manage, right? When you think about what's going on behind the scenes and being able to, to develop the right set of prompts and develop the right bot tree and develop the right connections into your BDRs and what hours are you open? All of those things start to you know, create complexity that when you're a business that has a lot of things going on and a finite amount of resources, you just have to prioritize. So we knew we wanted to do something around conversational. We just knew that it wasn't going to happen until sometime in the near future, right? It wasn't something we were in a position to do a year ago. Let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Norman, have you had a famous or memorable dust up in your career? I've never disagreed with anyone ever. <laughs> <laughs> However, people have disagreed with me. So now, you know, it, it's funny when you when you phrase it that way. Uh, I, I believe in uh, trying to be as truthful, transparent, and direct uh, as I can in what I do. I'm a little bit of a pragmatist in that regard. I have had dust ups. One of the ones I think about with somebody who I worked exceptionally well with uh, and who I respect and I, I use as an illustration because it, it, it helped me learn something from it. Uh, and this was a number of years ago and it was with a sales leader, super smart. And we had acquired some companies. And in one of the companies, there was a very loyal user base to the company that we'd acquired. And I, as the head of marketing, were like, cool, we'll call that, you know, company X and its product X, but I need to rebrand X to fit into our larger brand. And the X name is going to go away and it's going to be called Apple, right? Orange potato, right? We're over here. And, and the sales leader was like, but boy, they, they love X, they're you know, people have X tattooed on their face. Everyone wears X shirts. Like, what are we going to do? And, and we would go back and forth because it's like, I don't want to give up that value. And finally, we both got frustrated over the course of actually quite a number of months of going back and forth. And I said, look, I get it. All these folks love X, but there are a far larger number of people out there who are not customers who have never heard of X and who don't care at all. Those are the ones I'm going after. And I need that to fit in the larger scope of brands that I'm building. And, and that, by the way, convinced him after us butting heads over it for some time. But it was completely reframing my frustration and his frustration away from how we're hurting the X brand and the X customer and all this and turning it into, yeah, get it. There's X, you know, there's 500 of them, 5,000 of them, 50,000 of them. There's 50 million people out here that have never heard of it. I get one shot with them. I'm going to use this other bigger, better thing that I have. And, and that lesson to me of remembering that oftentimes we get into dust ups because we tend to put a set of blinders on. And 
all of us see exactly what we want to see. And if we just spread our perspective out a little bit, we might actually not only see it differently, but we end up that if we both open our perspective up, we start to start to intersect what we see. And, and I think that helped me constantly when I get to that point where I'm about to say, you know what, just an idiot. I remind myself, okay, like, look broader, really understand what's going on. And can I get this to a place where I don't have to say you're an idiot? I may end up having to say that at the end, but uh, I try to avoid it whenever I can. Okay, let's get to our final segment here. Quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing with qualified.com. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, as we as we just discussed. Ooh. They're on your website right now, and They're you can waiting. talk to them quickly with qualified.com. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Everybody, all our listeners, go to qualified.com to learn more. We love qualified. They've been with us since the very first episode of the show, and we love them dearly. Quick hits. Norman, are you ready? I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be. <laughs> Indeed. Number one, do you have a hobby or a habit that you're picking back up this summer? So, yes, because like many, I've been in lockdown and uh, came out of lockdown. Uh, and in lockdown, I decided to um, relearn how to play the guitar. And having really not done a great job on relearning during lockdown, I've decided that I'm going to return to once again relearning how to play the guitars because it's uh, still sitting there in the other room calling out to me. It's pretty and blue and I need to spend some more time with it. What's your What's your favorite song to play? Ooh, man, I, I'm trying desperately to learn how to play anything sort of from Audio Slave, uh, um, sort of a Tom Morello groupie. So anytime I can even make one or two chords sound anything remotely like Tom can produce, I'm a happy man. If you weren't in marketing at all, or even business, what do you think you'd be doing? I'd be a writer. Uh, I love to write. Uh, probably be a if I could, I'd be a, a practicing poet or philosopher as a writer and probably making no money. Yeah. What's your, uh, what's your, what would you write? I, I, I am, I do, I write poetry. Uh, I, I try to take a philosophical approach to the world. Uh, and I, I also maintain a Substack newsletter that I send out to folks that's various musings on things. Uh, people for better or worse have sometimes referred to me as a, uh, a philosopher marketer, uh, and, uh, and I'll take that <laughs> one. <laughs> In our prep, I did. We did not find the Substack. Uh, uh, what's your What's your Substack? It is Thinktone T H I N K T O N E dot Substack dot com. Thinktone is uh, was the name of the very first independent consulting company I created to house me very early in my career, and I have kept. Thinktone uh, and the Thinktone email address ever since. So it's the alternate me. <laughs> the alternate, sure. Um, we'll uh, we'll put that in the in the show notes here. Also, um, and we'll link up a bunch of stuff for you. Uh, cool. I know you're hiring some some folks on the team and all that as well. Yeah, I am. I am hiring. Would love for anybody who wants to give a recommendation for campaign people or a website manager for that awesome website we built. Uh, I need a great manager to come on board for that. What is your best piece of advice for a first-time CMO who's trying to figure out their demand strategy? For a first-time CMO, 
I give them the following advice around demand. You are going to make mistakes. That's part of the deal. Don't forget that in the making of the mistakes, that's how you start to learn what's actually going to resonate with your audience. And you can't be afraid of that. Sage advice, indeed. Well, Norman, that's it. That's all we got for today. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, obviously, our listeners should all go to acoustic.com to check it out, uh, especially if uh, if you're looking to uh, explore the acoustic platform and you haven't before, go go click around. Check it out. Check it out. Yeah, we appreciate that. And it was a pleasure to talk with you. And I, I know you have a great show and a lot of uh, listeners who are, and everybody's doing demand generation. And I, I, I laugh when I think about the fact that what was once upon a time, this arcane marketing thing. Now it's like every influencer has their demand gen strategy for uh, TikTok and, and Instagram. And uh, it's, it's the way the world works, right? Everybody's trying to get everyone else's attention. Marketers just do it best. Yeah, indeed. Uh, the best marketers do it best. <laughs> you got a, you got a favorite TikTok channel for us? Uh, you know, no, I'm not going to put a recommendation anywhere uh, on that. Uh, God knows what it'll tell about me. Uh, although I we, uh, I love to watch cocktail uh, videos whenever I can because uh, I'm an amateur bartender. And so watching other people make drinks is always fascinating to me. Indeed. Well, my, my, my wife, uh, has been pregnant for the past nine months. We just had our, had our baby here. So we've been drinking mocktails cause she used to, oh, she used to attend a little bar. And so she makes some killer mocktails. Thank you. Ah, that, that, that's great. Yeah. I'm, uh, we're, uh, we're six months along. So, uh, oh, no kidding. my wife has, yeah, been, uh, been drinking those mocktails as well. So, uh, I, however, have not stopped drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Awesome. Well, Norman, appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, any any other final thoughts? Uh, I think you covered everything. It's uh, come on, visit the website, ask us questions, and you know, for for listeners, make sure that you know you're going to make mistakes. That's pretty much in the job description. Indeed, Norman. Thanks again. My pleasure, Ian. Have a terrific one. ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.